Welcome to Campbell and Cohen's Cookie Quarantine. I'm Seamus Campbell. I'm Ben Cohen. And we are joined today by Drew Pollum, the former treasurer of YDA. How are you doing, Drew? Hello. I also prefer former, um, oh, what's a good word, troublemaker. For many years, I was mostly known as just that troublemaker from Washington. It's my preferred moniker. Treasurer makes me sound all legitimate, not I never was. Now, I think uh, troublemaker has been like my title because I come up with like crazy resolutions now. Well, when I'm now part of a weekly YDA alumni um, happy hour, and the the real like group, the period of time that this group is from is actually just right when I started coming in. So we're talking like the late 2000s or early early 2010s. That's the group of people. So these are a lot of the people that I'm normally with. Okay. Yeah. So for example, you know, Corbett is in it, but it's got folks like Brian Cross, Hillary Hunt from Washington, who was who was a well-seasoned veteran when I came on board. Um, uh, Sabrina McLaughlin, and um, gosh, uh, Matt Fruth, you know, those, that kind of group. So it's the kind of group of people where, you know, there, there, there hit a period of time when I, in my time in YDA where I literally was considered like the, the sage old wise man. And I don't know when that transition occurred. I know Ben, you probably had the exact same issue for you as well. You're like, all of a sudden, all these people look up to me now. I don't know where this came from. I know. God help us this all. Happened. Uh-huh. Yes. God help us all. And, and so it's nice to be back with a group of people where I could feel like, oh, yeah, these are the people I looked up to versus people having to look up to me for once. It's, it's been great. So, but um, I was telling Seamus, Ben, I have decided during quarantine that for the first time, I'm going to review, watch all the Marvel movies. Now, when I say I'm going to watch all the Marvel movies, I mean in, in release order. I have not seen the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. All I had ever seen until this point was stage one. So all of the origin movies, I saw Doctor Strange, I saw Black Panther, I saw Infinity War. And that was basically about it. Oh, and the Guardians and the Galaxy movies. But I never saw Civil War, never saw Age of Ultron, Winter Soldier. have not seen Endgame. Haven't seen those. Haven't Winter seen Soldier Thor Ragnarok, for example. The last one of the whole series. Which, which one is it? Winter Soldier. So I, have, so I have some thoughts about that. I don't know how I feel about the whole Hydra Shield saga because, and this might be because I never saw them all in theater, but I see the aftermath of it. You know, I was always told that this is about the Infinity Saga, it's the Infinity Stones. So anytime we talk about the Infinity Stones themselves, or we're talking about some item that involves the Infinity Stones, I'm usually just fine with it, it's a good movie. Except for um, Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3 was completely, totally not necessary to, and didn't push any plot forward. But basically all the movies kind of move some version of the plot forward. Winter Soldier, for me, kind of sort of moves the plot forward, but not in a way that was enjoyable for me. Winter Soldier, because, I mean, yeah, when I saw it, it's like, holy shit, this upends a whole lot of the storytelling because they centered it around S.H.I.E.L.D. and Nick Fury so heavily but it, it does it in a way to sort of make the motivations of some of their characters more interesting down the line, because that's really where you start getting the, the earliest signs of the split between some of the characters, um, you know, especially Cap viewing heroism in a much different way, which sets up a lot of his fallout with, uh, with Tony. And that puts them in a more interesting and dramatic spot for Infinity War and for you know, their little reunion uh, in Endgame. Mm-hmm. I, I guess from my perspective, 
I think a lot of the heavy lifting, because again, I've seen Infinity War, right? So now I've, I've connected the pieces that leads into Infinity War and that split. Now that I've seen Civil War, I watched Civil War last night. For me, I think a lot of the heavy lifting to that breach and then that, that reconciliation is done through Age of Ultron and Civil War more than it is through Winter Soldier. Like Winter Soldier, I guess, is necessary for laying the groundwork into um, into Civil War. But for me, the more profound break and the more profound stuff that occurs happens in Age of Ultron, which by the way, I have never seen Age of Ultron before. I was genuinely surprised and delighted that Ultron was being voiced by James Spader. And I love James Spader. My favorite ver version of James Spader is Alan Shore from Boston Legal. Yes. And, and Age of Ultron, I swear to God, I feel like when they sat him down and said, all right, here, here's what we want for you for this character. It was, we want you to be Alan Shore, except more nihilistic and like psychopath. Because all I could, because a lot of like his sayings were just like his nature, that sarcastic nature, very much felt like an Alan Shore type character. And I was just, for that alone, I was yeah. generally surprised and delighted. Have you ever noticed like James Spader like basically always plays the same character, but like no matter what, it's always phenomenal. I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree. There's always he, a little bit of a sneer to him. There's always something else going on in his head that makes him think that he's thinking on a higher level than you. <laughs> he's one of those people, he's one of those archetypes, it's kind of one of those archetypal people that just like they do something, one thing so insanely well that that's, that's what they, for the rest of their career, they kind of fit that mold. I think another great yeah. analysis character, or analogous character for meeting that one particular kind of role is like, for, for me, my favorite character in all, I love Quentin Tarantino movies. I'm a much bigger Quentin Tarantino fan than I am an MCU fan or anything else, mm. is um, Christoph Waltz as Colonel Hans Landa. I believe that Christoph Waltz was put here by God to play that, to play, <laughs> that um, role. And if you look at his roles after that, they're kind of, derivative is, is a bad word for it, but they're, but they're basically shades of that original character because he did that character so beautifully. All the other um, projects want some version that had, that had a, a piece of the Landa, the Landa character. If it was Tarantino, you know, in Django Unchained with kind of the cerebral um, kind of machinations that he, that he presented in that movie. But no, I agree. James Spader does the exact same thing in my, in my mm -hmm. book. Try to think of any other actors or actresses that just do the same sort of like same role over and over, but are just so great no matter what. Mm -hmm. Like that's nothing's coming to mind right now, unfortunately. I mean, you're talking about Marvel and Robert Downey Jr. is right there. Right. I, I would agree. I actually, you know, it was funny. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., I actually did watch Alec McBeal back in the day, and so I can see that there's a difference. Oh, 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 that's a poll right there. Ali McBeal. When did Ali McBeal get off the air? Like, 2001 or so. Yeah, that, that that's like a poll. That was uh, Hayden Panettiere's uh, breakout role. I, now, okay, I didn't know that. I actually agree with you, Ben, and it was funny because – at the end of Civil War, I was anticipating myself wanting to be on Captain America's side. I ended up, I think, on, on Iron Man's team at the end of the day. And it's really hard to kind of sort of explain how that came about, other than 
I just found Iron Man to be a more comparing, compelling character than Captain America. Now that I've kind of gone through it all, at the, I find Robert Downey Jr. playing Iron Man is so good that I'm, I feel compelled to be on his side of, of that conflict. I will say also, I'm very, very pleasantly surprised at how good Paul Rudd plays Ant-Man. I am pleasantly surprised by that, in my opinion. I like think my, you should not be surprised by the high quality of work of the University of Kansas alum, Paul Rudd. Thank you very much. Ah, uh, now there, there you go. <laughs> As it all comes back to center. It all comes back to center. Is well, Paul Rudd Yeah, he's from Kansas was, City. Yes, but is he from Kansas City, Kansas, or Kansas City, Missouri? These Kansas. are two important. Went to the, ah, uh, okay. One of the Blue Valley schools in, I think, the Overland Park area. Okay. I think he now lives in New York, though, so, you know, he left. No, he did not get to claim him. (laughs) We erase everyone because we put stuff here. That's like when Shannon claims Elizabeth Warren as an Oklahoman. It's like real. At at some point, you have to make make the acknowledgement that, yes, she eventually moved to Massachusetts. I was surprised she hasn't come into this room yet to hit me. Um, I'm not, not well, sure. Elizabeth Warren like has been in Massachusetts a long time and has you know been a senator from there. Paul Rudd lives in New York because that's where his a big part of his industry is. He comes back to Kansas City a lot. Like, I remember I was at a fundraiser for Antonio Delgado that he was emceeing. So <laughs> somewhere, somewhere, and I just like lost to time and it breaks my heart. There is a picture of. Myself and a bunch of the KU-based OFA staff in 2008. Backstage in the like staging area for a rally with then-Senator Obama, Kathleen Sebelius, and Paul Rudd. And I know it exists, and I haven't seen it in ages, and no one who is there can seem to find it. And it's so annoying. <laughs> See, we, don't have, we don't have those kind of celebrities here. We haven't had one like that since Bing Crosby. We just have, you know cult-like tech leaders that people follow and are hate, I mean, mostly wasn't, hate. Wasn't Hendrix from Seattle? Yes, but okay, I mean like actors and actresses. Okay. You know, the last the last great Washingtonian, you know, well, I guess we still have Macklemore. I, I should take that back. I shouldn't I shouldn't besmirch that. No, no, you can deny Macklemore. I think mm-hmm. that's your best interest. Oh, we actually really like him. I actually really like him. I like the, but then again, part of the appeal is, is that a lot of the songs have, you know, talks about specific places that I know about in Seattle or, or the music what? video. Look. My question is, why are you forgetting about Kurt Cobain? Because cause that's just a sore spot. And really, at the end of the day, Seattle feels bad about claiming Kurt Cobain because he's really Aberdeen. And, we want, and Aberdeen needs that win. They really do. What about Eddie Vedder? Eddie Vedder's originally from Chicago. But I mean, I know he's like a huge Cubs fan, but I mean, you know... He- Based himself, Pearl Jam was founded in Seattle. You know, and he's still out there making music and being great. He is. Pearl Jam is less. Pearl Jam is less claimed by the scene, I think, than some of the other major, like Soundgarden and um, Nirvana, obviously, and those kind of core groups are more, I think, recognized as Seattle-based than Pearl Jam is. I think part, I don't think it's anything bad. People like Pearl Jam a lot here. It's just, it's that recognition of like Eddie Vedder's roots back in Chicago and how connected he's back in there that really kind of keeps it from coming be a Seattle-centric 
like Nirvana will forever be Washington because literally they all came from this small, you know, depressed lumber town, literally in Southwest Washington. Like, like my, my great uncle used to coach football in Aberdeen because my family is from Southwest Washington. At least that side of the family is. And it's, it's a place that's been, you know, depressed for literally 50 years. And so there, there's a lot of like, having that connection, having and be so based in this, in that experience, it, it's re- part of the reason why it's much more revered than some of the other grunge-based bands. We will, however, love Sir Mix-a-Lot until the day we die, who is from Seattle. I actually was bringing up my phone, celebrities from Seattle. You also have, uh, let's see, uh, trying to find someone actually that people care about. Mac, oh yeah, you got Michael Moore, Jay Inslee, all that, duh. Shocker, the governor? Yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah, Mario Batali. Yes, Mario Batali's parents run a sandwich shop in Pioneer Square called Salumi. It is hands down the most popular sandwich shop in the whole city. It's, I've had some of like their meats. They do all their in-house cured meats. It's to die for. And that's where he learned was from his parents. And I think they've been running the shop for years. You know, she lives in uh, West Seattle now. That's, that's, I know she lives over there. She, um, when she was released from Italy, she came straight home. She was a UW student. She was a University of Washington student. That's how she ended up in Italy because the University of Washington had a exchange program with the University of Perugia over in Italy. And that's how she ended up there in the first place. And then everything went to hell. Basically, well, that's what happens when you have an Italian, when you have a system where literally you could come up with two different versions of how a person died and convict people based on both versions. It's a very interesting system they have over there. Oh, Apollo Antonono. Oh, man, that's a name I haven't heard from ever. You remember when soul patches were a thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I never, you know, grow, like, I'm not like Ben. I, I remember can't, that name like every four it. years for obvious reasons, you know, because oh, of yeah. course, let's face facts, the Winter Olympics is better than the Summer Olympics. Oh, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. <laughs> that is, I don't know about you guys, for me, the Summer Olympics, it's the, it's literally the swimming and the track and field and everything else is kind of, eh, but in winter you got bobsledding, you've got down skiing you got figure skating you got short you Thanks got short track skating it's got you got everything winter sports is uh, i, I kind of like gymnastics also yeah and I guess like that, the diving that's... and diving and i do actually watch a lot of the volleyball during the olympics i don't know why that's the only time i pay attention to it but during the olympics i find it captivating oh volleyball is great but it was it's not the same after misty may trainer left yeah, I know. because like her and carrie walsh if you watched it it was mm-hmm. no i remember yeah and listeners like i am doing some weird gestures with my hands right now but it was very much like that they knew where the other person was uh, they had eyes on the back of their hands it was just a beauty to watch i i believe as a, and i'm only going to say this as americans because i feel like this is a very much american phenomenon where our people become more captivated with a particular sport based off the people in the sport. Like I will forever love figure skating because I still remember the 96 Olympics and Tara Lipinski. Like I just, that, that's just, that's a, Mm -hmm. and I don't watch figure skating any other time of the year, but when, when it's the Olympics, I will sit down and watch figure skating and I can 
directly relate that back to Tara Lipinski. I don't think many Americans pay much attention to the volleyball, um, particularly the beach volleyball um, events, until you're until Missy May and Trainer. It's it's because they were such they were so good and they were so captivating personalities that you just had to watch them. It's kind of, and, I, and I think I'm a little bit curious to see what happens now with swimming with Michael Phelps kind of going trailing off and ending because he was because he's the exact same kind of person where people watch and have watched this guy for almost gosh for 20 years totally dominate this sport well think about the american interest in the tour de france and i mean obviously a lot of people still treasure that but how much it trailed off after lance armstrong's retirement and kind of his downfall after that right i mean i'm I started watching the Tour de France before Lance Armstrong got in because my grandfather was an avid cyclist and he loved the um, Tour de France. And so um, I got to see the, you know, I shouldn't say when it was not tainted because it was likely tainted even before Lance Armstrong, but I got to see and witness that rise in him as well as the fall. But I'll be honest, I think towards the later end of his life when it came out that, you know, with all the doping scandals, I think he actually ended up leaving as well. Stop watching just because he was just fed up with all, all the cheating. I remember in college, I was in some writing class, and one classmate of mine actually decided to take a very interesting stand, and he said that actually performance-enhancing drugs should be allowed for all sports. Of course, he actually disagreed with this, but it was like sort of a intellectual argument that he was just trying to make like for fun. And he actually brought a whole thing of it, but basically that it's going to bring everyone to a single baseline. And I think basically almost tried to make the argument for like super soldiers. Well, I think, I think, and then the assumption is on baseline is, is that everyone is taking the same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> everyone has equal opportunity to take the same thing. will have the same impact, but we know that's not well, true. Absolutely be competition over the quality of performance enhancing drugs. And there will be, more expensive and more exclusive ones at that point. It's just going to, the problem will just mutate to something else. Or, you know, afterwards you talk about people becoming super soldiers. I think, I think the next logical step would be cyborgs. <laughs> Sports cyborgs. Well, that, that's what, that's what uh, Oscar Pistorius was considered, right? With his blades? Mm-hmm. Technically, sort of. They weren't really, I mean, they were technically simple machines, but weren't yeah, really, but- I, I, but I remember very specific um, allegations that his artificial legs were going to give him some sort of competitive advantage because of wind drag or some other particular piece. I don't think he ended up doing very well uh, at all at the end of the day. I think he did um, fine. I mean, I don't think he like dominated every race he ran. Um, obviously, he had other problems. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One thing I never quite understood is like why marijuana is banned as a drug with well, the Olympics. Because it's, because, I think it's just because it's considered an illegal thing in most places now, and so they want to keep it out of that. Well, like that's, yeah, I can understand that part, but it's like that you're banned from competition because of that. Like Michael Phelps, as you said, Usain Bolt has used it, so like the fast swimmer and the fast runner alive use it. And but if anything, it would actually make them worse because it just clogs up their lungs it is because absolutely nobody wants an olympics where everyone's walk-up music was written by fish (laughs) (laughs) well played sir Uh, we all miss sports we're just reminiscing about the olympics now that's how it's gotten
which actually well, a few weeks ago I on this podcast I did bring up Marvel Olympics and true. lo and behold, John Oliver brought it up. So oh, I know coincidence. We're into it now. Yeah. Clearly, John Oliver Oliver is listening to you guys. Yes, yeah, that, that, that that clear uh, clear indication. We are Besides, a influential duo. I'm sure you knew that, Drew. Truly, yes. Besides, you need a distraction from you know the world being on fire and our general existential dread these days. And since you know we're dealing with a summer without baseball and soccer, which is bizarre, and I hate it. Uh, yeah, we take what we can get. Yeah, I went to the last Sounders game on March seventh, and. And there was actually a report recently about the discussion that went into behind the scenes with public offic- officials because, you know, when, when they held it, we were all a little bit surprised <coughs> they were holding it because it's March 7th, right? So we're talking less than a week, you know, later we're talking the cancellation of NBA. And at that point, you know, in at that point, Washington was still the major hotspot, right? So so everything's focused hard on us. It's hard focused hard on the county, and everyone kind of generally believes that it was a mistake to um, uh, gone there or have held it. Yeah, I'm actually very curious to see how many people who went to that match ended up showing coming back positive. I know at least one because I did, but um, I'm kind of curious to see if that became like a major hot spot within itself, just because of how the timing of the virus. Uh, went along as like in the city after that point. See, they canceled or you know postponed. However, they're handling the season now. Uh, soccer before Sporting Kansas City could play a home game, and I am, you know, I understand it and it's necessary. But my God, we were off to a good start. <laughs> Did you? So here's a prediction, Ben. Do you believe we're going to have MLS soccer this year? I want to believe that, but I am trying very hard not to get my hopes up. I know, like, I know that they're doing workouts again. Uh, SKC's Instagram account has been showing a lot of pictures of just members of the team, you know, in uniform practicing. I realistically don't think it's going to be safe yet because they keep talking about, like, oh, sometime next month. And then, you know, we're close to June, which is at one point when MLS was talking about bringing everything back. Um, I mean, technically, we're not on any phase of anything in the state anymore. Because as sort of a game of chicken with the legislature, the governor literally just said, okay, no more phases to this. We're not going to do any more state orders because you're just going to keep trying to overturn me on that. I'm going to put it all in the county hands. And Wyandotte County, I think, has had to play things pretty close because that was the major hotspot in the state for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, so. we're still, King County is still in what's called phase one for us. And, you know, I think under the our stay-at-home orders, we're now looking at major sporting events to occur until phase four. That's likely another month and a half away at best. So my guess is, is that even if it did open up, the chances of it being done at least, you know, in Central League Field is probably small. I, I'm, I'm, of, I'm of the opinion that right now the odds are against us getting the season back. And I actually believe that baseball is lost now. I really do. I believe both of those. And it bums me out because, you know, the Royals got and You know, we've got a new manager because Ned Yost retired. Who You know, Matheny had some potential. Sporting had, like, got a couple of really good new strikers that had both scored in both of the games that we got to play. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you've ever seen, like, pictures of the cauldron, the, the sort of the cheering section at Children's Mercy Park. People are close together. 
and it's fun. And when you're watching a match, it's part of the immersion. But right now, even with my you know nifty little team logo face mask, probably a oh, yeah. faster. Well, there there'd be no way for the Emerald City supporters, the ECS, to, mm-hmm. to operate normally and do what they would normally do uh, and be able to maintain social distancing because by because I'm assuming it's the same thing for the SKC supporters mm-hmm. where the very nature of the support is close quarters. Yeah, and we're so, all mashed together. Um, we're all, you know, cheering and chanting together. They've got people leading it. That's, and that's the point. We're all right behind the goal, so it's more intimidating. Yep, same same for us. Everyone's in the yeah. south end goal. And, you know, if occasionally it means getting hit in the neck with a ball, it's okay, never in the front. Didn't do any damage. So have... Have we determined yet whether or not Seamus is a Red Bull supporter or a Manchester City junior supporter yet? We really haven't. Ooh. Does he even does he even watch soccer? That's the that's the first question we should be asking. I think him. he's referenced it. Um, I also think that also he has throws him it. Out, so I think we might have lost him for a minute. Um, so while he can't actually contribute, yeah, I don't <laughs> know. And I think he needs to get on that. You know, New York has two major clubs. Like, he, he can do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. If he can actually hear us and has some retort, I bet it's driving him nuts. <laughs> For our listeners, the image that his screen has frozen on is literally him putting his forehead in his palm. He made you the host? Apparently, I'm more trustworthy than you, Ben. I am offended. Okay. Hey, man, I've been known for my trustworthiness. Made a whole career on it. Listeners, co-host and producer Seamus Campbell has, uh, I think, had to log out of Zoom and log back in um, because he was recording outside and his connection seems to have frozen. Uh, And he made Drew, our guest, the the host of the Zoom call when he left. I now officially declare that we're renaming this from the cookie quarantine to the uh, legal discussion with Ben Cohen and Drew Pollum. Both Which is ESPN. fine, but it doesn't alliterate. <laughs> oh, wait. And he has seized control again. He has, yeah. he has seized the means of his, of his production. You he has Drew yeah. the host when you left. You do that I don't know the- why that happened, but okay. Um, my iPad decided that it was too hot. And so when I was sitting because outside, you could see me on the screen. I'm not apologizing. So, yes. is it hot in New York right now? It's like, uh, well, I'm actually out of my family summer house on Long Island, and so we're, we usually get like an ocean breeze. But right now, it's like eighty something degrees. Dang! It's not feeling the ocean breeze. The summer home. Yes, quite. Indeed. Indeed. Mm-hmm. We, we, were, we were trying to determine whether or not you're a Red Bulls fan or, or as I describe him, a Manchester City Junior, also known as New York City FC fan, or if, you, or if you watch soccer at all. I don't really watch it at all, but if I had to go with anyone, I'd say probably Red Bulls, because also I drink a lot of Red Bull. And they're the team that's been around longer. Mm-hmm. Yes, and they're not the team that's basically used as a farming, farming team for uh, a completely different club. If I had to choose a uh, team that I actually would care about, it would be probably uh, AFC Wimbledon, though, because John Green. You know, there really is no way to be wrong when it comes to fandom in soccer, except for being a Portland Timbers fan. That's that's a bridge too far. No one. I, should... 
does anyone i mean do you know anyone who actually likes them i mean unfortunately yes yes i do like i i sometimes in disbelief that portland is actually a real place and not just sort of a collection of ideas (laughs) what you've just described is the entire state of oregon that sounds about right i um I'm a firm believer that that Oregon doesn't need to exist as a state. Hey, man, I live a hop, skip, and a jump away from Missouri. I get it completely. Yeah, there you go. It's like if we could combine it, it's like there doesn't need to be two Dakotas. There could just be one Dakota. We can put Kansas City, Missouri. You know what? Kansas, Missouri, just make it one. We can just recombine Washington or Oregon. Just name it Washington because that's the appropriate name for it. Everything's fine. Everything's good. We can teach Oregon to pump their own gas. It's all great. Wait, Oregon, they don't allow pumping your own gas either? Yep. There's only two states that's that where you can't pump your own gas, New Jersey and Oregon. Yeah. And that's the one thing that like bothers me the most about when I drive through New Jersey, other than being in New Jersey. It's like I love the way it's all how, I just I just appreciate how how New Jersey and Oregon have the similarity that they're redundant when compared to New York and Washington respectively. Actually, I remember uh, Chris Christie uh, once said in an interview that he had done polling and basically the housewives like just did not like the idea of having to pump their own gas and that's why it's never passed. <laughs> Jesus. There was a Republican that like, if he had run in 2012, he probably would be president. What, Chris Christie? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. I guess I guess the question would be: Would Chris Christie be able to expand Mitt Romney's map? Would and I I feel like the only place that he would have potentially turned would have been New Jersey. Like, and I guess my question would have been: Is would New Jersey really been in play at that point? I could see him possibly being able to get Pennsylvania because also a lot of uh there is actually really no media market for new jersey it's all either new york or philadelphia so uh, you'd get some uh, pennsylvania then you could probably if he's able to get i think just because of, like how he was always so down to earth he would probably be able to do well in ohio and michigan is that the word is that what a good word for him down to earth wait was that when when was he seen in the skybox hugging jerry jones i need to remember when that occurred because if that occurred before 2012, that would have been perfect. Because then, because that, because that would be the ad I would run for for him being an out of touch elitist. I am googling it now. Uh, 2015, it looks like. Yeah, we're 2014. It was just in time, try, time yeah. for it to you know crush him in 2016. Obviously, right mm-hmm. before he took out Marco Rubio along the way. Uh, the Republicans, you know, what, what's happened to them? Oh, we've seen this. Oh. They've given into their baser instincts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. I think what we have watched is a party make the simple calculus of we are a party not based on ideas, but a party based on power. And this, and our, and we will frame the platform in a best way to maximize our ability to hold power. That's ultimately at the end of the day. I think what the Republican Party is because I think. I think there's the Republican Party, like the actual infrastructure, and then there's the constituency groups. And each of the constituency groups each have, you know, their own set of ideas and values. But the actual people who are who were elected, and the actual apparatus itself, is is primarily concerned with power. 
at this point because they because at the end of the day they see whatever vessel in front of them or person as a way to achieve whatever goal through power um because and i think it's only been exacerbated knowing full well that with president trump on the top of the ticket and him not particularly confident enough to um, push forward any cogent ideology that people can fill it in, claim, make him, make him think it's his own, but really it's someone else's agenda. Better question is uh, whose agenda is it? Would it be Stephen Miller's or Mitt Romney, or not Mitt Romney, uh, Mitch McConnell's? I think it's a little bit of both. I, I, I don't think it's particularly one person's agenda. I think as we have learned um, through some of the dysfunction of the White House is that there's always competing. In, I mean, and, and that's, that has not changed. There are always going to be competing interests um, in administrations. You know, we have the more famous um, version during the Lincoln administration with the team of rivals. Uh, but I think the Stephen Miller's crash, you know, clash with the Kellys, Rince Priebus's of the world who then clashed with, with the Mitch McConnell's of the world. And they all are trying to get pieces of this pie that's, that is the attention of the figurehead for them who's going to help push forward whatever agenda they want. I think Stephen Miller is particularly adept at it because I think while Donald Trump is not necessarily somebody who is naturally aligned with the Mitch McConnell's of the world, he is naturally aligned or has decided to naturally align himself with the Stephen Miller's of the world because he's always made racism and immigration a central piece of his, of his rhetoric. And for, for Stephen Miller, it's easy for him then to take his version of that, which is a f much more hardline and extreme version than I think even Donald Trump would naturally espouse and make Donald Trump come to that line. That's a fair assessment. <sighs> then, because y'all have seen today how President Trump is now saying that the protesters outside the White House are all fake actors and Tifa about the whole situation regarding uh, George Floyd? No, but I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. He's also said that if they get past the Secret Service, he's going to unleash the most vicious dogs and ominous weapons on them. I'm really, really excited to see what the most ominous weapons are. What does that even mean? Uh, like, like, really like, 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 I have, like, like, so what is Donald Trump saying that if, if the, so, if, Secret Service is breached. He's just going to have like this pack of dogs around him all the time. Like what? Yeah. In the the most yeah. Well, with the ominous weapons. So apparently when he first entered the White House, he's like, why can't we just use the nukes more? So mm -hmm. I think with him, like for him, it's like, okay, let's just nuke in DC. Get me, get me back to New York. I'll just nuke DC. Be done with it. There may be a killer well, robot in there somewhere. Well, this is a man who's just decided that instead of paying people, he mu he much rather go through bankruptcy and completely, totally screw people out of the money. So I guess in his mind, it's a, him nuking DC is just like going through bankruptcy. It's just, hey, I've messed this up, but I'm going to hit restart, and this is my restart button. I remember like when I first learned about like all the bankruptcies and stuff, it was 2004, and Chris Cuomo was on ABC. He... Uh, it was a 2020 special all about how Trump is actually not the biggest uh, developer in New York, which he was like always saying that in the beginning of every episode of The Apprentice. And 
Donald Trump was about to sue him and all these things because and go after his family, which so there's like an ongoing feud though uh, since then be, uh, with the Cuomos and Trumps. I was about to say I have not heard any sort of enmity between any Cuomos and Donald Trump since then. I I, I think this petered out. Yes, clearly, clearly not. You see, when it comes to Cuomo uh, related contact, I am much more amused by a the continuing banter between Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo, which I find amusing and, and lighthearted and sweet, as well as the ongoing speculation of whether or not Andrew Cuomo has a nipple ring. I believe there's all the pictures there, and it looks pretty damning. It does look pretty damning. It looks pretty damning. I think I think the only way he I think he needs to do the right thing and show up one one of his press conferences shirtless so we can finally know whether or not he has a nipple ring. I mean, or even better, just why can't he? Just go swimming or something, you know, like show off uh, how Jones Beach is uh, come back and all of that during the COVID nineteen pandemic. Just go swimming, swimming. He'll be shirtless. Mm-hmm. He'll put everything to bed. It won't uh, raise any sort of questions. But with the whole fighting with between Chris and Andrew, I actually caught Chris Cuomo in a lie. Ooh. And he is yet to respond to me on this. So I have a very very crazy memory. And in 2008, uh, he did an interview with his brother on Good Morning America. Basically, it was a whole week where there was this thing called the hot seat, where each of the anchors of Good Morning America would be asked all these really tough questions by someone close to them. At the time, Andrew was the Attorney General of New York, and so they brought him on, and he actually made uh, Chris do the whole jurat where, like, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so I'll be God, blah, blah, blah. And so the question, one of the questions was, have you, did you ever beat your big brother in basketball? And Chris says, no. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, and Chris says that his big brother, Andrew, never uh, beat him in basketball or always lost a basketball because their father said he had hands like bananas. Jesus. Okay. So I actually found the transcript of this episode of Good Morning America, tweeted to Chris Cuomo. I said, so how do you explain this? Haven't heard anything. Scandalous. It is extremely. He actually actually has tweeted to me before because, like, one time I noticed that he actually wore the same suit on Good Morning America that he wore uh, the night before at one of his uh, brothers. I guess it was his brothers' re-election night party in 2014. How gauche. So, you know, as we talk about the general ominous threat of Donald Trump and the ever feisty nature of the Cuomos. Drew, talk to us about the recent revival of the committee. Ah, yes, the committee. So, you know, I brought the committee. The committee really was formed because I didn't want to go through what I went through in 2016, where everything was a knockout, dragout fight between Bernie and Hillary. So when I came up with the committee in the first place of like, hey, here's my ranking of people. It literally was me saying, look, I may, I may like these particular candidates at different levels, but all these candidates in some form or fashion are, are acceptable or not acceptable. 
the not acceptable folks, as it turned out, to be people from, mostly be people from New York plus Tulsi Gabbard, for obvious reasons. I decided to bring it back this week for the sake of, I really just was bored and I wanted to do something different. And we were finally starting to get in the vice presidential uh, reviews with the leaking that Amy Klobuchar and Val Demings are both being um, um, important, I mean, are being vetted. I'm of the opinion that the vice presidential pick, I think this year is actually more important than it would be in previous years, because I think there's a real moment right now for the party to do, I call the generational handing of the torch. You know, Barack Obama was very much a generational difference between, you know, Bill Clinton, the people behind him. But then, you know, we kind of shifted back to an older generation of leaders. And when I say older generations, we're not just talking about Joe Biden. We're also talking about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So I think this year is very important because we have this ability to go, you know what? This is going to be the end of this line of leaders. We need to have our next line of leaders. A couple of things I'm finding out through this, uh, through the VP experience. Um, number one, New Yorkers, much more chill with me naming the, the two, two tiers after New Yorkers and making and, and ribbing New York. Much more chill than the Virginians. I cannot tell you how many people are upset with me that I've named the eh, why we've made this decision, the Tim Kaine tier and then the Terry McAuliffe tier for, the, for what makes me outright angry. Number th- and the other, the other piece of it, people have just as many opinions about who needs to be vice presidential, needs to vi- be the vice presidential nominee as we did when he came to president, which tells you exactly just how wide open and just how scary it is that we're going to have to pick somebody who in theory is supposed to help come us all together. So I've seen a little bit of the breakdown just that you've put up on Facebook. Can you kind of run down where you're placing certain speculative picks right now? So for, for me, you know, the old system was, hey, because the old system was five tiers. The first three tiers were basically said, if you're in the first tier, it was basically me saying, hey, I think these people are really going to have a chance to be a nominee down to the second tier, down to the third tier. If you're one of those three tiers, I was going to vote for you. If you were in the fourth tier, I would only vote for you in the general and you're in the fifth tier there was no way I was going to vote for you. The vice presidential tier is basically me pulling it out there, not only who I think is going to get it, but who I think needs to get it. So if you're in the top tier, I think this is the, these are the group of people that meets the, gen, the definition of a generational torch handoff. And if you look at where the people are right now, it's almost entirely young, or when I say young, younger black women. Val Demings, Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris. And part of the reason why, in my opinion, that those that cadre of people is where we're going to find our VP is because there's an acknowledgement there that, hey, the base of the party is the most consistent voter for us are, are in fact, black women. And number two, these these are the kind of caliber candidates just all happen to be black women. Um, if you're about, the- uh, that he's your black uh, uh- Keisha uh, Lance Bottoms is actually going to be uh, in the running. I have not heard that. I have not. Um, I heard that from my boss, who is like in the process of moving to Atlanta. Uh, she said that to me the other day that Keisha Lance Bottoms is thinking of like, or has been been considered or name thrown around, which I had not heard either. But like, I think she'd be I. great. I mean, is that like somebody throwing that out as sort of a counter to Stacey Abrams or? Because I mean, Maybe. I can see the logic of wanting to keep Georgia in play because there's at least a little bit of a chance for that. 
I guess, but also I think it's probably something that's been a little bit more vetted. And also with everything going, uh, also, have, and this was actually all said before everything last night, which listeners, this is being recorded on May 30th. Uh, so last night there were riots in the wake of everything happened with the killing of George Floyd in Atlanta and other cities. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, as, as this time goes along, we're going to learn more about these people. I mean, there's clearly candidates we know way more about than others. Like, we know way more about Kamala Harris than we do Val Demings. And that's just because Kamala Harris has already gone through the extensive vetting process by going through the Democratic primaries. We, we've, we've, so my, my belief is that because one person, I, I don't think we should shy away from picking the, picking the right person just because of a name recognition issue. So just because Keisha Bottoms may not be as known to us, she could still be the right person and we should, we should explore that. What I don't want to have happen is a situation where we, to, where we have the VP pick, we choose the quote unquote safe option and it feels like a wasted moment. Like I, I, I use the version of Tim Kaine I know that my friends in Virginia love Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine's a great senator. He was a great DNC chair. He was a great governor. These are all 100% true things. But just because you were a great DNC chair, a great senator, and a great governor did not necessarily mean in that particular moment you were the best VP candidate. And if people remember back then, we were also vetting other individuals like Julian Castro, this young, vibrant, Latinx individual that you know was a secretary and a member of the cabinet and and you had this moment where you could really i know for me as a democratic activist and voter where i said i want this person because again i want a i want eventually the next generation of leaders to step up and it felt like that that opportunity was missed so when i think about who i think it needs to be it really needs to go back to that point that we're moving we're 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 bridging the generational divide you know and it's like I'll use another example. We were talking about Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar is a great Democratic senator. Just because she's a great Democratic senator doesn't mean she's the right candidate for the party for vice president. It's nothing against her. It's just in the moment, we need to be choosing somebody that's going to bring everybody to this to this moment where we need to all get behind uh, a ticket that um, will get rid of Donald Trump in November. I think after everything that came out this week, the fact that when she was DA. She did not prosecute the uh, police officer who killed uh, George Floyd. I think that she's basically out of the running. Can, can I, you know, I, I have to say, so I, I don't know if, I think you guys are aware of this, but my day job is I am a prosecutor. I'm a prosecutor for the Lummi Nation. I'm very proud of it. I'm actually transitioning out. I'm, I'm switching jobs at Lummi. But the piece of it, of the George Floyd um of everything that's happened out of George Floyd, there's two pieces of this that really have actually shocked me. Um, number one was the coroner's report. I have never seen a coroner's report written that way. Oh my God. I am, I was. When that talks about the possibility or the, what is it, the likelihood of substance abuse? And, and, and I'm sorry, it's like under, so what? I mean, we can see on the video what happened. We have it captured. If it wasn't captured and we didn't have all this evidence, maybe, sure, why not? You can probably create some reasonable doubt, but you have the evidence. You can, we have video footage of, of, a, of a person expiring. So how, you saying, well, you know, the person was intoxicated, all this sort of stuff, doesn't really matter. And as Ben knows, 
you take the defendant that you get. You, get, you take the person what you get. The person happens to have some underlying condition that makes them more fragile, too bad. That doesn't take away your culpability. But the second piece that I will admit that's kind of surprised me is, is that I'm seeing more and more law enforcement groups come out against what happened, against that officer. And a prime example happened here in Seattle. So Seattle's um, police guild or police union is called the Seattle Police Officers Guild. Spog. Spog is not well liked for a lot of good reasons. Um, Spog, the head of Spog is a Trump loving uh, line officer. And he came out in the statement and said, this is not how we're trained. This is not what we're supposed to do. You know, this is goes against every piece of code or training that we're told to do. And that kind of crystallizes kind of this unique moment for that particular incident for George Floyd's murder. It was done in such a way that not even law enforcement could justify it. And something I thought was really great was this video that I saw that came, I saw it from uh, the Philip DeFranco show because he's one of my favorite YouTubers. Mm-hmm. And it was these two guys are actually basically standing guard outside a convenience store with AK 47s, rednecks. They openly call themselves rednecks. Uh, right. And they said, you know, what happened there, we're standing in solidarity, but uh, with George Floyd, we, we support the protesters. This is in Minneapolis. And they said what happened was disgusting, but at the same time, someone has to protect this store because the cops aren't doing it. And this is like, these are pro- people that I'm going to assume are probably Trump supporters. But mm-hmm. even when they are saying that this was over the line, like that's when I, I honestly... I am a little shocked that this police officer is not completely, well, run at, been run out of town. I mean, there point. have been rumors that he had, which I was a little surprised when they were actually able to arrest him because, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it turned out not to be true, but there were some rumors for a little bit before his arrest that he'd fled to Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the points to just the response from a lot of police departments, I mean, obviously a lot of them still have work to do. But I've seen a lot of that's just in in my part of the country as well. I mean, I, I haven't been at the demonstrations in Kansas City, Missouri, which are pretty prevalent. There have been some images circulating of officers who have been signs to monitor them also coming out and holding in police brutality signs in uniform, which they may get in trouble for administratively. Um, two of the big police, the, the police chief of two of the biggest cities in the state in Kansas have come out very strongly condemning what was done, what the officer did in Minneapolis, one of whom was the police chief here in Topeka, which is kind of part of why I was comfortable going to the demonstration today, because I was a little bit more worried about what police would do than some of the protesters for obvious reasons. Um, One of the most powerful things that I saw today, I mean, aside from just a few hundred people coming out to a very last minute rally was the, the officers that were monitoring the uh, the demonstration, which, you know, it's protocol for any sort of a rally at the Capitol. But what they were doing was they were in their patrol cars and they were just driving laps around the building. There were, I don't know, four or five around the entire space, which is a bit more than is probably necessary. There was one who wasn't white. And that one, when he would pass by people chanting there would roll down his window and like start pumping his fist with us. Mm-hmm. It was this really unexpected, but really moving moment of solidarity. And I think that enough officers around the country are starting to see 
what the overreach and kind of the obsession with their whole thin blue line concept is getting, how dangerous that can be, and just how that's hurting people. And it's you're right. And I, the thin blue line is a great is is a really strong point, Ben, because in my line of work, I've I've seen pieces of that happen where it's the hey. We, you don't know what it's like for us to go through, go out there every day, not knowing if we're going to be able to come home to our families. We've got to protect each other, not understanding that that indiscriminate protection um, ultimately breeds mistrust, and that mistrust leads to leads to the violence that we now see. It leads to the deaths. It leads, and then the response with the with the rioting and the and the and the demands for justice, and it's. You know, there's. I, I tell people all the time. I completely understand why people don't trust cops. It's it's how could how would you with all the facts you have in front of you, and so it does make me happy to see some. Hopefully, seeing people talk, do the talk. I hope there's walk behind it. I also know I was watching a video earlier today, where it was a um, protest in Louisville, and there was a um, there was a woman who was giving a um, TV interview, and they actually pan over to this officer who's pointing straight at the camera with the rubber bullets and he's just shooting straight at straight at the at the journalist and then, oh, and, then well. and obviously and then, there was the incident in Minneapolis with Oscar Jimenez the other day yeah that, that, I was just about to say that it's like what are you guys doing what are you doing how can you be in that place space to do that and that it's is, like I mean I mean, I mean, that can be one of the biggest problems with just the entire concept that we have of the role that police will uh, play in, in, in our society. They've grown, some of them have grown very insular. And, you know, some of the more positive things that we were discussing a few minutes ago, I think are a reaction to that and a pushback on it. But there is still a fair amount of that culture that maybe loses sight of being police for reasons other than glorifying the police. Right. I hope I'm saying that eloquently enough. Well, I think I think too many police officers are trained and designed to view their job as being on the front lines of a war. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. and so instead of instead of the original intent of community-based policing, which is you're here to protect the community at large, instead you view the community as the enemy, and uh, and that is almost hardwired. I think it really has become hardwired into a lot of officers and, way doing their jobs and also with that it's sort of all i've noticed that also some police officers they are trying to always go for sort of like the big thing they don't care about the small small stuff and so because i was at an alumni event with a friend of mine who uh, became a police officer i asked him like why isn't there more enforcement of people who are break dancing on the subways in new york city which for me is one of my pet peeves uh, I don't care who knows it. I will stand when people are doing doing that because it's just dangerous. I've seen people get hit in the face one too many times. And he says, police officers just don't care. It's an area where they just think that, you know, it's, and how do I say this? They see that as small potatoes, that that's not going to be heat, uh, enough to, like for their quotas and stuff. But at the same time, it's also, they... I think all the time it's always like that they're trying to go to all of these big things like robberies and stuff, which is the case with George Floyd. Like they thought he oh, was a burglar and they th- uh, it was that he was trying to pass off a counterfeit $20. Yeah. Bill. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was a oh, yeah, check. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. 
Uh, no, I was confusing it with. Um, sorry, what was the, the other unjustified murders uh, around the country? Ahmad, Ahmad Arbery. You're thinking Ahmad. Arbery. Yes, yes. There and we that go. That wasn't even a. That wasn't even the current officer. That was a retired one who. Yeah. I believe had faced a lot of disciplinary action. Well, well, and and, and I think I think part of the reason why we, we've had this this such a strong pushback on George on George Floyd is George Floyd, excuse me, is because it came on the heels of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, one right after another. Ahmaud Arbery gets lynched in the middle of the street. Breonna Taylor gets shot in her own home. And now we see this, this awful image of this man gasping for air and literally dying in the street with somebody's uh, knee on their neck. And I think, you know, after a while, one event after another where there's no justice, eventually people are going to demand it outside of the normal, outside of the institution. And that's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. And I can't help but think that the reason why charges were brought, were brought against that officer, the charges would have not been brought up to the officer it, or in the fashion that they were, if not for the protests that were happening in Minnesota. Oh, not at all. That public pressure. They would have put him on administrative leave for a bit and called it good. They might have reassigned and put him in another like precinct. Um, that's it. I mean, that is... And then also the third degree murder, like that's... Now that obviously, I mean, he deserves more than that. Um, I think you got to remember that to hold somebody in custody long enough, he does have to have some kind of a charge. And that is sort of an easy one to get somebody in on. Um, bumping it up to a higher degree... They can still do. I mean, I don't know enough about the system in Minnesota to know like when he would have to go to a preliminary hearing, but they were going to have the opportunity to increase those charges, and I have to assume that they will. I, I hope. Honestly, I hope because third degree is oh, is insulting. Yeah, it's a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I mean that's essentially it happened. It's your fault. It's you know clearly not the most heinous kind of murder, which is an odd metric anyway. Um, my dog has opinions, sorry. Um, is that your dog, Ben? What's that? Someone else? Is that someone else's dog? Is that your dog? Oh, no, that's mine. Hey, you, Doggo. For the listeners out there, I'm now officially waving at the dog. Now the dog's looking at me. Yes. That's right. There's attention, buddy. Yes. I assumed that, you know, either the mail was coming or somebody dared to walk another dog by. But back to our other point, which I completely derailed. Uh, sorry about that. No worries. Uh-huh. No, I mean, I, I would very much expect that to be something greater as they get closer to actually having him appear in court. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity for that. I know a, a couple of people that I know that are in Minnesota have said that they fully expect that. And the prosecutor probably knows that he's going to lose his job if he doesn't go harder on him. Which I, I actually don't think we're going to see a higher charge. I actually anticipate, and maybe this is just me, I anticipate the third-degree murder charge will eventually be dropped and he'll only be convicted of manslaughter. As the, uh, and that is, that is not to be a Debbie Downer and be pessimistic. It's just being in the system and knowing how things work. It, that's, that, the, you know, we... You know, it's 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 an old prosecutorial trick to overcharge and to plead down. And I feel like, I feel like from their perspective, they pled. That there's a part of me, the cynic, the cynic in me, wants to believe. No, no, excuse me. Let me let me change this. The optimist in me that wants to see the best in people wants me to believe that they've done it as a third degree murder as a placeholder, but they're looking into doing more. 
The cynic in me says that they did the third degree murder charge when they really what they want to get on him, him on is the manslaughter. And that's that's the charge they actually want. I mean, some of that is I am really hoping that there's going to be enough political pressure at this point. Because, um, yeah, they very well could do that. I mean, I spent time as a public defender. Uh, so I know well that people will like to overcharge because they know, hey, you take somebody that can and, and I can in jail and just put them on probation. They're going to jump on that. Right. And I can't speak to, I mean, my situation is unique where the chances of me prosecuting one of my own officers is, is limited just because of the unique jurisdictional issues in Indian country. So may, maybe that's, maybe I would never have to face this in my, in my current job, but, you know, depending on what kind of relationship the Minneapolis police department has with the County prosecutor, you know, for all the external pressure that you got, um, going one direction, you know, charge more, charge more, charge more. What we're not seeing is if there's any internal pressure, charge less, charge less, charge less. Yes, he needs to be held accountable, but not murder. Get a for a lesser homicide. And that's, that's my concern. And at the end of the day, for, from my perspective, you know, justice, ju- justice is so extremely complicated because you have this situation where you have to find just a balance between the victim and the defendant on what is the right course of action, right? You, you can't just throw a book indiscriminately. You can't be leaning indiscriminately. But at the end of the day, you cannot, I think, I think the county prosecutor cannot take in, if the county prosecutor tries to view this as, hey, we're only going to view this in the vacuum of, of the case itself, of like whether or not of the actual facts, I think they will, we will have missed justice. There will have been a miscarriage. Because, oh, they're, they're, because at some point you have to have a piece of accountability that takes a place, the whole of the community, the, the whole community need. You need um, to be able to tell your citizenry that, hey, we are actually going to protect you from the people who have failed at protecting you. And you need to tell those people, the people that are in the police force in whatever form their union takes, which as I've been told is apparently fairly strong up there, and you need to be able to tell them that there are more eyes on you, that your behavior is unacceptable. There is Or just something as simple as the shield on your chest does not protect you from the law. Mm-hmm. The shield does not protect you from the law. And too, too often, too often we have allowed individuals to use that shield to protect themselves from the law. Particularly when it comes to the context of in like the far too many situations that we're now seeing police brutality against minorities, particularly against black Americans. Very much so. Um, Mm -hmm. There are people that are outside of that culture of that profession that want to believe so thoroughly in what it can, you know, provide to them and just sort of the fantasy of it that they're willing to believe that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, can take a walk around my street and I live in a fairly democratic area and I'm still going to see the, you know, the little blue line stickers, the people waving, putting it on flags in their house, which feels not legal. I don't know. Um, those assets. You, you see, for me, it's a, it's a situation where if this was non quarantine times. I was going to work, you know, I would go from Seattle, super blue, and then all of a sudden go up north, you know, towards rural areas. And as I got more rural, 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 then I started seeing more blue lines. Then I'm starting to see more pro-Trump stuff. Then I'm seeing X, Y, and Z, you know, all else. And I mean, I mean, 
my officers, a lot of my officers sport thin blue line stuff. They, and, and they do it regardless of party because for them, it's the fraternity of, Hey, we're all in, in this together. We all believe we're all here to, to, um, we all have to deal with the same set of issues as being police officers. But the problem is then is, can you get that group of people to go, okay, but when a person does something egregiously wrong, horrible, terribly wrong, and they're one of your own, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to protect that person? Or are you going to do what you were told, what you were trained to do, what you, what you said you would do, which is uphold the law and, and, and try to help that person get prosecuted? Because I would have no doubt that the county, the county, Hennepin County, I have no doubt that they probably are having a hard time finding people within that department to um, assist in the investigation and to assist in this, um, in the prosecution mm-hmm. because of that fraternity, because of that, of that um, shared experience that they're all supposed to have. You know, there's this very romantic notion we get from movies sometimes where the corrupt cop is rooted out and the others immediately turn on them for their betrayal of their values and just not as realistic as we would want it to be. No, unfortunately it's all, (laughs) I take it from personal experience. It's all too real. It's not like, um, what is it? Gotham where if you actually watch from beginning to end, like it's all corruption with then Jim Gordon comes in, he's this golden boy and basically his own partner, Harvey is saying, this isn't how we do it, and goes up the ranks and all that. But, yeah, it's a tough situation we're in, but... You know, my aspiration can just be that all of policing will be like on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Not quite there yet. No. I I, I firmly believe, and, and if any of my officers uh, hear this, they'll, they'll get very angry with me. I firmly believe that there needs to be a hard reset with our police. We need to go back to community-based policing. And part of that is going to be demilitarization of the police. Mm-hmm. I think a lot, you know, I, I make a point when I talk to people, you know, when I was in college, I was taught that the very first police force was in, was established in London. As in, and, the, and the whole goal was this is a civilian force that is in the military. But over time, and, and for the record, yes, that is, while we start off with that idealized version of the police, we probably never really had it because it was always twisted and turned both in, both in uh, England and in here, particularly in Southern States when they were end up being um, turned into ways to where they spent a lot of their times um, forming policies to try to catch runaway slaves. But the whole goal was, this was supposed to be a civilian force. It came from the community that wasn't the military because the military at the time was keeping law and order in the cities, but we wanted to get those out. Well, the police over time, over time, over time, over time, um, whether it be because they're recruiting people with military backgrounds or because of how they train or the equipment they get has basically become a paramilitary organization, whether people want to want to believe that or not. And with that comes the mentality, again, that we're at war, but we're not at war. We're supposed to be protecting the community. We're not supposed to be at war at it. And I think you need to demilitarize, take a lot of the, that doesn't mean that people don't necessarily aren't having guard arms it's just i don't want you know automatic rifles in the hands of each and every one of our officers i don't want tanks i don't want all these these this military hardware in a civilian force and i i I think if we can start with that i think that would help detoxify kind of the mentality of that war mentality within the police at least i would hope it would 
I'll be honest, like when I just walking down the street and I see a police officer and I see the gun at their side, uh, like a weird cold chill just comes over me. It's just because like it just the sight of a gun just scares me a bit. As it should. I've been I mean, I'm I'm a white man, so I have a lot of privilege in this regard. I don't realistically have to expect the police to target me. There are, I have seen a couple, and I don't know if this is just something that they were doing for one, for fun or what, but if they're at the speed trap, you know, and they've got their little radar gun, they'll hold it out both hands, yeah. like somebody getting in a firefight in a movie, and I'm sure it's somebody amusing themselves, but I would have to imagine that's got to be terrifying to people. My, I, um, I got to actually shoot with my officers. I went night shooting with them once last winter. And so I, I think over time, as I become like more familiar with the officers and I've become more, I've become, I've become less stigmatized to uniform officers holding, having firearms. I, that doesn't change my opinion in terms of, you know, that demilitarization of, hey, you don't, there's certain equipment that we shouldn't have for all, and I use the term all civilian because I think specialized forces like SWAT has its purpose, but not every officer needs to be out, needs to be a SWAT officer and is like, you know, out the yin yang is full of body armor with multiple guns around them. They just, they just don't need that. Um, it is, it is also, I will admit, we do have some plain clothes detectives and I know there aren't and that, and it, and they usually, most of them don't, um, show it they usually have it covered by their shirt that is that's always been disconcerting to me i i still haven't gotten used to that because i know that it's there but it's like i can't see it and i just don't like that well maybe that's how we end this uh podcast you know unless we want to end on sort of a happier note I would prefer a happier note only because, again, existential dread, the world's on fire, yeah. we're all in quarantine. I would prefer that we do it to do a happier note. I would like to end on a happier note. Um, I don't know about you guys, but the thing that I've picked up doing that I now do is I brew kombucha. I'm now up to two jars of it. I actually quite enjoy it, and it's easy as heck. All you need to do is get yourself a a uh, a starter kit you can just go i, I, was, you I was drinking kombucha when we started recording not Excellent. any that i brewed myself there is a very nice little brewery called morning light up in hoyt kansas which is about a 20 minute drive from topeka that used to you know when we weren't in quarantine times and they weren't scared of traveling would come and sell it every weekend at the farmer's market uh but now they'll do just pickups every thursday and so a couple of times Literally the only times that I've left Topeka since all of this started were me and a friend will grab our refill bottles and head up there. Mm -hmm. nice. Weird thing actually with, uh, so I've not been doing kombucha, I've not been baking or anything like that, but so earlier I had to go out and get some grocery shopping. Uh, and weird thing I really, I've not been able to find at any stores and luckily I found some today was cooking spray. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my mother about this and well, basically we think that it's just everyone's just taking up baking. So mm -hmm. hence cooking spray, but which 
there's baking spray, but everyone's just getting cooking spray. I don't know, but whatever. Uh, but there was this one mill apparently in England that the family owns it. It dates back to like the 12th century or something like that. And uh, it's still like all done by stone and all that. And suddenly everyone in England has taken up baking. So the mill has actually had to like hire people and uh, they uh, basically, the hardest problem right now is that they don't have enough people like uh, don't have enough uh, paper bags. They are now, and this is always like sort of like a family hobby type thing. So, but I was able to find cooking spray, so I was very happy about that. Also found apple chips, which is they have become like my quarantine snack. Right, right, right now the holy grail item that we can't find anywhere that we're like we would actually like this is rubbing alcohol. So we got everything saying. out. We can't. Yeah, rubbing alcohol in particular is apparently like tr that and Nintendo Switches. We mm. want a Nintendo Switch, and apparently, find you can't find one in the post-apocalyptic world. That's that one of the first in. things. A lot of people thought it was going to be running out of oil that caused everything to fall apart. No, it's it's the Nintendo. I yeah. will say that I acquired one long before this started because I. When I got hired, got a higher paying job last year, I decided to buy that for myself to treat myself. So yeah, you know, I just, I had to go and get myself a copy of Animal Crossing and I was just all set. Nice. Nice. How's your island looking? You know, it's okay. I, a lot of people seem to be building like paved roadways on theirs and I have not found those. Like they've never come up in the shop. I haven't gotten recipes for that. So I'm considering like checking to see what I need to do to make that happen because I would really like to. But you know, I've got my full complement of, of villagers. Um, I set up some soccer nets near uh, near the village uh, square. Nice. I don't play, but actually, I did see. I think it was yesterday on Instagram that the Lyric Theater, which is where Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, uh plays like that's actually all been recreated on in Animal Crossing. People are being very creative. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry. I just have allergies. People have been very creative with some of their things. You know, the, the, the cleverest I've done has really just been to put a large like clock, you know, a, an outdoor one next to a blue police box. Really, it's a phone booth uh, at the entrance to my island. And I thought I was being very fun with that. If there's ever a time that we need the doctor, it would be now. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> with that, it's been great thank, uh, potting with you all. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on, Drew. Our theme music is produced by Alexander Nakamrata. I've been Seamus Campbell. I've been Ben Cohen. And we have been joined today by Drew Palm. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.